God, today we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask for healing. In a day where we are so connected to the world, set us apart. In a time of great unrest and uncertainty, we ask for holiness. So search our hearts, renew our minds, and help us love like you love us. Make us holy. Use us to do your will on this earth. God, today we ask that you would restore us. Gather up the bits and pieces of our souls and mend them with your loving hand. Search out those parts that we try to hide from you. Today, God, we invite you in. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. We trust you. May we be set apart for you. May we be holy. Oh, come on, people. We've done this all the time. Good morning. There we go. That's better. It's great to have you worshiping with us here at Faith Bible Church. Before we dive in today's uh, message, I want to just say two quick things. First and foremost, I do want to say thank you so much to the ladies who put together the Revive Women's Conference. I understand God did some really neat things there that a lot of people are encouraged. Uh, God worked in the spirit and hearts of a lot of people's lives. So thank you for that. Also, I just want to take a moment and just assure that everyone has parked straight this morning. <laughs> I'm going to be going out actually after my message and making sure that all of you are lined up properly and correctly. Uh, no, seriously, I just want to take a minute and say thank you so much to Fred for putting all that together. No kind of things came together. Um, obviously, God had sort of a sense of humor there that we had the women's conference going on while we were painting our parking lot, but it all worked out. Uh, we're excited about that. We can kind of tick that off our box. And uh, again, just want to say thank you to Fred with it. This morning, I want to take a moment and I want to talk to you about a time where I was absolutely terrified. I think it's kind of interesting because I'm talking about a movie that I watched, and here we are just coming a week off of Halloween. Now, several of you might have watched a Halloween movie in the past and been terrified by it, and what I'm going to tell you is the movie that terrified me had nothing to do with Halloween. It had nothing to do with sort of the ghouls, goblins, et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, are out there doing their thing on Halloween day. The movie that terrified me, some of you might remember, was the movie entitled The Day After. Some of you might remember that movie, and essentially what it was, was it was a movie that depicted the day after a nuclear holocaust in which the United States and the Soviet Union engaged essentially in the ultimate World War III scenario. And so what I will tell you is, is that for literally about a month, each night that I went to bed, I would look out over Boulder Valley. We lived in a home near Boulder, Colorado, that was essentially on the eastern side of the valley, and it would look onto the mountains, and I would look out over the city of Boulder, wondering if perhaps that night while I slept, something like that was going to happen. 
in which the world that I knew, that I was familiar with, was completely annihilated. And to be honest with you, that brought great fear to my life. Interestingly enough, the reason that I was fearful was, number one, it really wasn't that great of a scenario, should it happen. Number two, should I actually make it through, quote unquote, the initial Holocaust event, the day after wasn't exactly that great either. And so why am I talking about the day after? Well, what I'm going to tell you is, is in a moment, we're going to be looking in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, and we're going to be talking about the day of the Lord. And what I'm going to tell you is, is the day of the Lord is coming. It's been promised by God. And what I will tell you is this, that as terrifying as the day after was to me, that event will pale in comparison to the day of the Lord. When literally we discover that the earth and the heavens as we know it will melt away by fire. So my question to you is this, are you ready for that day? Do you even believe that day is coming? Is it a myth to you? Is it a fable? Is it something that you look and say, yeah, you know, we don't need to worry about that. That's just some fairy tale that's been said in the scriptures. Or are you anticipating that day? And should it arrive, are you ready for what happens after? Friends, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd ask that you would turn with me into 2 Peter. We're going to be looking particularly at chapter 3. But before I dive in, I would like to just again lay the context for those that might be newer or visiting this morning so that we can understand essentially why Peter's writing what he writes in these couple of verses. 2 Peter is a book that is essentially looking at internal forces or individuals within the church who have come forward and they are tainting the message of the gospel. They're changing what has been stated. The two big things that they're changing is essentially this idea of, you know, it's been long enough. And the day of the Lord that we hear about, where is it? And is it really going to happen? Now, interestingly enough, we also know that in 2 Peter, Peter is writing most likely in between 64 or 67 AD as he's imprisoned in Rome. We know that this is Peter's swan song. He is not going to get out of being imprisoned and we discover that he will be martyred for his faith. We also know that church tradition tells us that most likely Peter was crucified because he was told that he was going to be, uh, uh, that was going to occur to him at the transfiguration, but upside down. So Peter is exhorting the church to be careful about what they're teaching and preaching because false teachers and false prophets will come and distort the message of the gospel. And so in the first chapter, essentially what Peter is doing is he's exhorting the church to three things. The number one thing is that we are to have a real faith. What do we mean by that? Again, I've said this multiple times, but that's foundational to everything else that's going to flow within this book. A real faith means a true, real relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
Not religious behavior, not just going to church on Sunday and ticking off the box and getting things done, but a real relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How do we have that relationship? It begins with us acknowledging that we are dead in our sin and we need a Savior. It then moves to the fact that the Savior has been given to us through our Lord and Savior Jesus who died on a cross to forgive us of our sins. Knowing that as much as we'd like to think so, there is no way or no means that we can get to heaven or the kingdom of God by our own self-righteousness. Jesus died on the cross to essentially provide the bridge or the gap, uh, the, or the bridge to the gap from us being dead in our sin to being alive with Jesus Christ and therefore approvable to God and heirs to the promise of the kingdom. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus by God's mercy and grace, we become adopted children into the family of God, and we are heirs to the promise. That's a beautiful thing. But then Peter says this, we're not only to have a real faith, but we're to have a growing faith. He exhorts the members of the church to say, not only should you have a faith in Christ, but add to it godliness, being set apart from the world. And so friends, the other thing that we've exhorted is this, salvation as wonderful as it is, as important as it is, is not the only aspect of our Christian faith. And friends, you've heard me multiple times say this. If in being saved, in an encounter with Jesus, it was one of these things that, yeah, that was 20 years ago and it was great. I walked down the aisle, super exciting. But to be honest with you, after the last 20 years, I haven't really done anything with it. I likened it to my marriage to Kelly. I told you, yep, I'm married to Kelly and she's an awesome girl. And then you were like, well, tell me more about her. And I said, well, Gosh, to be honest with you, I don't know. I don't spend a whole lot of time with her. I come to church with her on Sunday, and we talk for an hour, and then they tell me a little bit about her, and then after an hour, I kind of get bored, and I need to go watch my football game. You'd kind of look at me, and you'd say, well, wait a minute, that's not a marriage. It's the same thing with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, friends. And so my question to you is, not only do you have a real faith, but do you have a growing faith? Are you different after having come to Jesus Christ? Is your life different from the day that you came to him today? Are you different from the world? If someone looks at you, would they be able to say there is a difference in you? Or are you masquerading as a follower of Jesus, yet still in love with the world. And then the final thing that Peter exhorts is not only to have a real faith, not only to have a growing faith, but we're to have a grounded faith. And I find it so interesting. I had no idea that the women's conference was about being grounded in the word. Well, that's exactly what we're talking about here with Peter. He's saying, are you grounded because when, not if, when false teaching comes, will you be able, because you have a real growing and grounded faith, to recognize it and say, that's not the gospel.
And friends, I've said before, I find it interesting. This is not a judgment at all on mainline churches or the megachurch. But I do ask a very serious question. In the 1980s, we have seen the rise of the megachurch. If you look back to the United States pre-1980, it was extremely rare that you would find a church over a thousand people. We then, in the 1980s, have this seeker-sensitive movement that comes forward, and the next thing you know, megachurches are popping up all over the place. And now, to be honest with you, a church of 1,000 people is not anything big. There are churches of 10 to 20,000 people. And while not judging them, my one question is this. How is it that we have the rise of the megachurch and all of these large churches, yet such a decline in the morality of the people within the United States? It just doesn't make sense. And so, friends, one of the things that I want to encourage you in is this, is that if there's a church that is simply talking about how Jesus makes you a better person, or if there's a church that says, hey, you're good, Jesus is just there to make you better, and you're there for month after month after month, and you do not hear that Jesus died on the cross because you're not good, you're dead in your sin. And that the reason that he died was to give you life. Something is terribly wrong with that church. If you don't hear the word sin, if you don't hear the word salvation, if you don't hear the word sanctification, if you don't hear the word repentance in the pastor's sermons, something's wrong. Now please, before you just judge me, Sometimes you might have a sermon where that isn't the case. But if you've been in that church and it's just these messages that make you feel better about yourself, friends, lovingly, what I want to tell you is, is begin to question what's being taught there. The message of the gospel is that we are desperately in need of salvation because in our own ability, we are dead. We can't do anything to get to God on our own. But God, in his mercy and his grace, his great love for us, gave his son, Jesus, as the perfect sacrifice. And being fully God and fully man, Christ went to the cross, scorning its shame, as we read in scriptures, and endured it being blameless so that we, the blameless ones, could become blameless because of the one who was blameless. That's the gospel. And the reason that we worship, the reason that we're so excited about our Savior Jesus is not because he makes us a better person, it's because he moves us from death to life with him. And without him, we would still be dead. Because of that, then we move forward with aspects of our faith, works of good deeds. It's not works to be saved. It is the grace of God. And because of the grace of God, we, therefore, do works for his glory. And so Peter takes us all through that in this first chapter. And then he says, well, why am I doing this? 
Because what I want to tell you in chapter 2, where we were, is that there are people who are coming forward and they are making fun of the gospel. They're making fun of the fact that God said that he will come again. They're taunting that. They're looking and they're saying, look at how long it's been. Do you really think that the day of the Lord is going to become part of what's going on? And friends, if I was going to tell you this, this is only a couple of years after Christ was crucified. Jesus most likely was crucified in either 30 to 33 AD. Peter's writing in 64 to 67 AD. This is only about 30 years after Christ's death and resurrection from the grave. And here we are, and it's 2021, November 7th, and nothing's happened. And so sure, there are going to be people out there saying, you know, the day of the Lord, is that really going to happen? Do we really trust it? Do we really believe that there is going to be a day that's going to be probably a hundred times bigger than what we see in the day after, where literally the earth and the heavens melt away by fire? Or is that just some far-off fairy tale? And friends, what I want to ask you is this. Are you looking in that direction? Is that on your radar? Because honestly, it could be today. Now, I'm not someone that likes to try to drive fear into people. I'm not one of those pastors that's like, oh my gosh, it could happen. But it could today. We could be driving home. I could be preaching right now. We could go bed to bed tonight. And God could say, this is what's going to happen. Now, there are a series of events that need to occur. But as we look into the book of Revelation, we realize that as the scrolls are opened, as they begin to come forward, it's like a rushing river. Things start slowly, and then they move rapidly to the culmination of the new heavens and the new earth. And so the simple question is this. Are you ready? And so what I'd like to do is Peter's saying that there are going to be people who are going to challenge this. It's not if, it's when. And it will be through the entirety of the church until God calls his church home. And so we move into the third chapter. We begin the conversation about the day of the Lord. And then we pick up in verse 8. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. So the question that I'm going to ask is simply this, as followers of Jesus, how should we live out our lives as we await the day of the Lord? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you essentially a bunch of R's. Rejoice, remember, reflect, and recall. Rejoice, remember, reflect, and recall. That's what we're after this morning. The first thing that I want to show you as we look into this is we're going to begin with the aspect of rejoice. I want to start off, I'm going to read this passage, and we're going to kind of pick it apart and essentially look at what Peter is telling us. Again, if you have your Bibles with you, we are in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to, don't miss this, repentance, not salvation, repentance. That's going to become important in just a minute. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. The day after times 100 or a million. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. And the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Friends, are we ready for the day of the Lord? Or is it some far-off myth or fairy tale that we've forgotten about, that as each day goes by, as technology continues to move forward, we begin to think that, you know what, maybe it's not going to happen. And what I want to show you is this. If God promised that he would deliver his people out of Egypt and into the promised land, and he did, if God promised that a Messiah would come and deliver his people out of the bondage of sin, and he did, if God said that that Messiah would die on a cross to forgive the sins of the world, and he did, if that God said that that same Messiah would rise from the grave, demonstrating his triumph over sin and death, and he did, if that God said that that Messiah would then dwell on earth with mankind, demonstrating his triumph, then go to the kingdom of God to prepare a place for us, and he did. If that God then said that that Messiah will come again, do we believe it? And if that God said that that will then move forward to the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, where the heavens and the earth will melt in fire. Why wouldn't we believe it? And so lovingly, friends, what I want to tell you is this. Are you ready for that day? The first aspects that I've talked about in this kind of our uh, sort of remembrance uh, theory that I'm giving you is this. Number one, in verses 8 and 9, we are to rejoice that we worship a God who is patient and slow to anger, wanting all to come to him. I want to take a minute. And Peter says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. He's essentially referring back to the scoffers, those who are mocking, essentially, God's proclamation, that are saying, when is this day of the Lord going to come? It's been 30 years. We haven't seen it. And these scoffers are obviously mounting their attack because now it's not only been 30-some-odd years, it's 2021. It's not going to happen. These are far-off fairy tales. Come on, you really think that the heavens and the earth are going to melt away by fire. And what Peter is doing is, is he is send, saying essentially that God transcends time. Now, a couple of quick things for you. Some individuals in the past have utilized this passage for 
somewhat of a stance on the millennial aspect of the kingdom. They've said, okay, here it is. This is the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, what I'm going to tell you in terms of how you view your eschatological, which is a big word, but end times theology, that could be true, but most likely here, Peter is not moving in that aspect of the establishment of the millennium. He is just saying, hey, what I want to let you know is God transcends time. And for him, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. He's not slow as we think he's slow. But then watch what he also does. He then says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Don't miss that. Peter Davis, in his commentary, says this, and I think this is important for us to see. He says, but why might the scoffers have used the delay argument? Why were they doing this? In the text cited, the issue is the sureness of God's judgment. It will indeed come. And it will come, at least from God's perspective, promptly. Instead of delay, what is happening is mercy. God is patient or long-suffering. Please don't miss this. Because oftentimes we look at this and we think, well, gosh, you know, what an angry God. He's going to destroy the world by fire and melt the heavens. But we miss the fact that God is long-suffering. Don't miss that word. And then I want to show you, this is not the only place. This, this, it's like, oh, great, okay, God is long-suffering. We see that in 2 Peter. No, God's character throughout the Bible is that he is a patient, long-suffering God. And this isn't exhaustive. I just want to give you a couple of spots where we discover this. Exodus 34.6, Numbers 14.18, Nehemiah 9.17, Psalm 86.15, Joel 2.13, Jonah 4.2, Nahum 1.3. And the reason that I bring that up to you is this. This isn't just some crackpot statement that Peter is saying to try to appease the scoffers that are there. Peter is talking to the individuals of the day, establishing the character of God that would or should be known by those who were following God of that day. It's a recognition to the Old Testament God and demonstrating that Jesus is essentially the Messiah. And that in that, God is long-suffering. And why is that important? Because, friends, what I want to tell you is this. God does not desire to send anyone to hell. That's not God's heart. That's not what God wants. But what I'm going to tell you is this. Individuals choose to send themselves to hell because they want nothing of God. God is long-suffering. He wants all 
He doesn't say some. He says all to come to repentance, fully knowing that there will be those who choose not to. My question is this. What are you choosing? And then watch this. He is patient with you. Praise God for his patience, his mercy, and his grace. New each and every morning. Friends, what I want to tell you is this. None of us are perfect. None of us are righteous. None of us can get to God on our own. And what I want to tell you is, is no matter how broken or far off you may feel from God, there is nothing that can keep you from his love. There is nothing that you can do other than, interestingly enough, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, denial of God, that will keep you from him if you cry out to Jesus. There's no sin so great that God says, oops, sorry, that's too much. Anyone can cry out to Jesus. And so first and foremost, I just want you to not think that you are beyond hope if you're here this morning and this is the first time that you're hearing this message. I don't believe that you're here by coincidence. I believe that you're here by providence. I believe that God is speaking to your heart right now and saying, I want you to know me and I want you to know that I died on a cross so that you might have eternal life. And I did that because I love you. And friends, when you cry out to God and say, Lord, I need you in my life. I know I can't get to you on my own. I know I'm a sinner and I need to be saved by who you are and what you've done. The joy in that is when you do, you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. But I also want to tell you this. Notice that Peter says, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He uses the word repentance, not salvation. Now, salvation is important. But Peter is exhorting and he's saying, friends, when you have a real encounter with Jesus, you will then have a growing faith that should be grounded in the word of God. And if it is real, growing, and grounded, then you will repent. Repentance is simply this. It's turning away from your self-ruled life, your own desires, your sins, the pleasures of the world, and turning toward God. And friends, we do that on a daily basis. And so one of the things that I want to ask you is this. In your life, when you walk with God, when you sin, not if, <laughs> when, are you quick to repent? Or, like Paul exhorts, do we continue in sin so that grace may increase? Praise God for the grace of God. 
Praise God that his grace is new each and every morning and that we can rest in it. But may we not pervert that grace and use it as a license for sinfulness. Because Paul immediately after says, make ukgenoto, the strongest form in Greek, by no means. Absolutely not. Don't use your salvation, in quotes, as a license to continue in sin. Oh, God will forgive me. It's okay. Oh, God must have just missed that one. It's fine. Friends, what I want to ask you is this. If you've had a real encounter with Jesus and you know him as your Lord and Savior, there is an aspect known as sanctification that draws us away from the world and toward Jesus. Now, that's a continual flow that happens essentially from the moment that we are saved until the moment that God chooses to take us home to be with him in his kingdom. But I want to ask you this. Are you turning away from the world? Or are you living in the world acting as a follower of Jesus? Masquerading. Not being discipled. Friends, we rejoice that we worship a God who is patient, slow to anger, wanting all to come to him. Praise God for his mercy. Praise God that he is long-suffering. Praise God for his patience. But what I will tell you is that day is coming. So not only do we rejoice, but the next thing that we see in verse 10 is this. Remember that God's judgment will come like a thief in the night. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Peter says it himself. Friends, none of us know. None of us can calculate. All I can tell you is, is we're closer today than we were yesterday. And tomorrow, should we move to tomorrow, should the Lord allow it, we will be closer to it than we were today. But what I can tell you is this. Everybody is going to go, oh, schnoiky, when that day comes. Because none of us know. It's going to come like a thief in the night. We are going to feel like we've just been robbed. My question is, what's on the other side of that? Because for those that are in Christ, that day will be a day of judgment, but also a great day of rejoicing. Those that are not in Christ will be a day where they truly are robbed. Hence the title of the sermon today, Don't Get Robbed. It will happen so fast, so unknown, that none of us will feel like we're prepared for it. But what I want to ask is this, are you prepared for it, even though it's going to come like a blink of an eye? Peter continues on, and not only do we see that we're to rejoice that we worship a God who is patient and so to anger, and to remember that God's judgment will come like a thief in the knife, 
he then says, okay, because of this, what's the solution? Right? I don't know about you, but if, if he just stopped there, okay, great, I'm done, my message is over. I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd be sleeping at all. But then he says, okay, yes, this is going to happen. So in light of this, in light of this fact that is going to happen, what should we do? And that's what he says in verses 11 through 12. Ref, uh, reflect lies of holiness and godliness as you look toward the day of the Lord. Since, or sorry, uh, excuse me. Yeah, in, in verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way. Okay? Since everything, because this is going to happen, rhetorical question, what kind of people ought you be? I want to know the answer. Don't you? Praise God that he doesn't stop there either. But he gives the answer in the following part of the verse. You ought to live holy and godly lives. Church, lovingly, I'm going to ask you this. Are you living a holy and godly life? Not legalistically. I'm not about legalism, but I'm asking a very serious question. Are you living a holy and godly life, or are you masquerading as a follower of Jesus, perverting the grace of God? Abusing the grace that's been given. Coming in, looking your best, acting as all is well, and then the moment that you leave, you throw Jesus at the door, and then come back on Sunday, hoping that he will love you. And lovingly, what I'm going to tell you is God does love you. He loves you unconditionally. And it's been displayed by our Lord and Savior Jesus dying on a cross. The question that I give to you is, do you truly love him? Are you reflecting lives of holiness and godliness in your living? And that's between you and God. Not only does he say you ought to live holy and godly lives, but then he says as you look forward to the day of God and speed is coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements that will melt in the heat. So a couple of quick questions for you. Peter exhorts that we're to have holiness, and I want to ask you this. The aspect of holiness that's discussed here is that we are set apart from or sanctified. So question to you, have you been set apart from the world? Are you different? What's different about you? Are you more excited about the coming of the day of the Lord? Are your eyes more toward the kingdom as each day goes on? Or are they toward your own blessing? Oh God, give me this. Jesus, you exist to give me a better life. Jesus, you exist so that I can be healthy, happy, wealthy, and wise. And that's a lie. And so many churches are preaching it. Come to Jesus and you're going to have the best life possible. And again, I say, how did that end up for the apostles that followed Jesus initially? No, you come 
to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And then it's thy will be done. And if Jesus gives a better life, if you get the job that you've always wanted, if you do retire healthy, wealthy, and wise, that's just the icing on the cake. But that's not the cake itself. And the other thing that I'll lovingly tell you is this. Friends, if you do come to Jesus and you're not healthy, wealthy, and wise, has God abandoned you? Because so often, so many people come to Jesus and the world doesn't go the way that they think it should and they become mad at God because they feel that God has abandoned them. And the reason that they're struggling is because they don't have a real, growing, or grounded faith. Now friends, trust me, there are times in my walk with Christ where there are doubts, there are questions, there are times when I say, God, what are you doing? But friends, what I can tell you, in some of the darkest, deepest moments of my life, where there was a lot of hurt and pain all around me, those were the moments that I felt God move the most. And that was because, by God's grace, this is not by myself, by God's grace, he enabled me to have a real, growing, and grounded faith where I was able to say, God, you are here, and you will see me through this, and you will be the one that leads, guides, and directs for your honor, your glory, and your name's sake. And praise God, he did. And so, friends, I ask you, are your lives set apart? Different. That's holiness, sanctification. But are they godly? Are they godly lives? Meaning, godlike behavior, essentially manifesting the fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self control. Or are you still filled with lust, anger, rage, malice? How is the fruit of the Spirit being manifested in your life? Now, I'm not saying that we're perfect. We all have good days, we all have bad days. But is there a difference? Have you been set apart? Are you godly? If someone looked at you today and then they saw you six months from now, would they see a difference? Would they see a trajectory that is away from the world and toward God? Or would they see a flat line? And I've said it before, friends. If they see a flat line, I'm not judge. And praise God for it. But I might strongly suggest that if they see a flat line, it's the same thing in a heart monitor, which means you're spiritually dead. And it's not popular. It's not the feel-good message. But friends, what I want to tell you is this. I see so many people out there masquerading as a follower of Jesus Christ. And you ask them some fundamental, simple questions. And again, while I'm not judge, I have met many people that say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and the more questions that I ask them, the more terrified I become. Are you living a holy and godly life? Are you manifesting the fruit of the Spirit? And then... 
He says this, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. This is challenging. I'm not going to say that it isn't. Because oftentimes individuals have said that if we sort of live more godly, holy lives, we can kind of move this along faster, right? We can kind of bend or twist the, the will of God, right? Peter here is essentially, again, speaking rhetorically. God knows the day that he is going to send Jesus back. God knows the day when he is going to establish his kingdom. Essentially, what Peter is doing is saying that as we work, we can, in some sense, not change the mind of God, but accelerate the aspect of its coming from our perspective, not from God's. And then he continues on, and he says, not only should we reflect lives of holiness and godliness as you look toward the day of the Lord, but then finally... In verse 13, recall the promise of God that we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth. But in keeping with his promise, God said it, he will do it. We are looking forward. Okay? Interesting. That aspect, this word here, is sort of uh, multi in its level. We are looking forward, like, hey, I'm excited, right? Excited, but we're looking forward. Friends, how many of you are looking forward to the day of the Lord? Forward with a kingdom perspective. Forward to the truth that it is coming. Forward recognizing that God has said it and he will do it. And then I ask, how many of you are actually looking forward to it? Excited about it? And what I'm going to tell you is this. If you're not looking forward then you're probably not looking forward to the day of the Lord. I want to take a minute, and I just want to establish something here. A new heaven and a new earth. The home of righteousness. Friends, I don't know about you, but I look around the world and I see so much unrighteousness occurring. I see so many things happening where I'm like, that's just not right. That's just wrong. And like the psalmist cry out, how long, O Lord? How long must we endure? How long until you will make wrong right? And what I want to tell you is, God says, I will. It's coming. And on that day, when the heavens and the earth melt away, God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. No more hurt, no more pain, no more sin. No more unrighteousness. But the presence of God. In that new heaven... And that new earth will never fade away. And so I ask again, are you ready for the day of the Lord? And the way that you can know that you are ready is to have a real, growing, and grounded faith 
that's manifesting holiness and godliness. As followers of Christ, this is the take-home truth. We are to live lives of holiness and godliness as we rejoice, rejoice that we worship a God who is patient, long-suffering, slow to anger. Reflect, reflect on the fact that we are to live lives of godliness and holiness. And we recall that indeed the promise of God is coming. And then finally, may we remember that that day is going to come like a thief in the night. God's promising us a new heaven and a new earth. He said it, he will do it. My question is, are you ready? Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. We just thank you for these strong words from 2 Peter in which he is essentially exhorting the church to stay true to the word of God encouraging them to have a real growing and grounded faith, recognizing that the individuals will come and try to change that truth. Scoffers will make fun of the promises of God. And Lord, in that, may we realize that indeed we rest in the promise. We rest in the promise of what God has done and is doing and will do in our lives according to what's been stated in his word. And so, Father, as we look to the coming, the promise of the day of the Lord, we are excited And we are looking forward, meaning excited, but also looking forward with kingdom eyes to when that day may be. Until that day, help us to labor for you. Help us to do what we can to bring glory and honor to your name, recognizing again that you are a God of mercy, a God of love, a God of grace. Doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. Doesn't mean that we have to live lives that don't ever sin. But what it does mean, Lord, is because of who you are and what you've done, that we recognize how you have saved us from our sin. And because of that, the love that you give compels us toward a life that is desiring of being holy or set apart for you, manifesting godly behavior or, as your word says, the fruit of the Spirit. Father, help us to know that we don't do it alone, that we have the Holy Spirit within us to lead, guide, direct us, encourage, and convict us. But Father, turn our hearts toward you. We thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. And we ask it all by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's children say, Amen.